Listeners be advised that this podcast contains graphic language about experiences of military life. This is Out of Uniform. I'm Tim Kolzak, an Iraq Army combat vet, and I've made it my mission now to share stories of fellow veterans. On the show's last episode, we heard part of Kyle Carpenter's story. He's the youngest living Medal of Honor recipient. Corporal William Kyle Carpenter should not be alive today, but the fact that he is gives us reason to trust that there is indeed a bigger plan. So God bless you, Kyle. God bless all who serve and protect the precious and amazing life that we are blessed with. President Barack Obama presented Kyle the highest honor in the military at the White House in 2014 for something that happened a few years earlier in Afghanistan when he was just 21 years old. Kyle's unit was on a mission to make inroads to get the Taliban out of Helmand province. He was on a rooftop patrol with his buddy, Nick Euphrazio. He wasn't just with a fellow Marine, he was with his best friend. Kyle and Nick had met in training. In Afghanistan, they patrolled together day and night, a friendship forged in fire. The two Marines, Kyle and Nick, were on that rooftop and had taken on some pretty heavy fire. Kyle remembers this much about what happened. We were going through different scenarios. Hey, if they come down this road, this is how we'll react. You do this, I do this. If they, you know, come from this compound, this is what we'll do. And I remember joking with them, and we were at the very end of our four-hour shift, and I mm. remember joking with them like, hey, what happens when a grenade comes up here? Because we had got attacked with grenades the whole day before, after we had taken over this compound. And he, uh, he was like, you know, my ass is off this roof. And I said, dude, I'm right behind you. When the grenade landed, other Marines in the compound looked up and saw it happen. Uh, Kyle tried to stand. He lunged forward toward that grenade. And then he disappeared into the blast. I don't remember seeing the grenade, hearing the grenade, thinking about it. All I remember is that's two seconds of conversation. And then I remember I felt like I got hit really hard in the face. My ears were ringing so loud, just as they are this very moment. My vision immediately was like a TV with no connection, just white and gray static. And immediately the confusion and disorientation set in. And I, I first tried to kind of push myself up and shake it off. And then I realized I couldn't feel either one of my arms from the shoulders down. Mm. And then that kind of led to some panic, but I was still more just trying to figure out what had happened. Yeah. And I was thinking, okay, last thing I remember, I was in Afghanistan, but I, I think I remember being on a roof. What could have injured me this bad on a roof? Because again, as you know, like most of the time you step on an IED. Yeah. So I thought, well, maybe I got off the roof, stepped on an IED, and just in the state I'm in, the last thing I can remember is being up there. But then that was interrupted by what I thought was my buddies messing with me and pouring warm water all over me. I'm like, dude, like so messed up, guys. Come on. I'm in this banged up state, and you're just like messing with me and pouring water all over me. And I realized that it wasn't warm water, that it was blood, and I was profusely bleeding out. And I felt it on every inch of my body. Wow. And so at that moment, knowing how I felt, knowing how quickly I was getting tired, and not just tired, like 
I can't describe it. It was just like every fiber of my being deep down inside, just, it was just a tiredness like was slowly consuming me. They found Kyle lying face down directly over the blast area. His helmet was riddled with holes. His gear was melted. Part of his Kevlar vest was blown away. One of the Marines who was there remembers how Kyle kept asking one question, uh, and that was whether Nick was okay. Kyle Carpenter doesn't remember that either. Nick wasn't okay. He suffered severe traumatic brain injury, and Kyle was put in a medically induced coma for five weeks. He had wounds to his skull, severed arteries, a collapsed lung, a shattered jaw. His face was torn up. Kyle says pretty much everything was injured in his body except from the knee down on his left leg. He woke up in what is now the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Maryland. And my first sight was I opened the one eye I had left and my first sight at this new life and bonus round that I'm living now was red Christmas stockings that my mom had hung on my hospital room wall uh, decorating for the holidays. And there was four inches of snow on my hospital room window, and I had faded on a hot, dusty rooftop on the other side of the world, and it was, you know, 85, 90 degrees. Mm. And then more confusion <laughs> ensued. <laughs> all my, all that was my, just the beginning of the confusion. <laughs> yeah, all my doctors are wearing camouflage, like the greatest surgeons in the world. I'm asking, like, hey, do you know what you're doing? Like, <laughs> are you sure you know how to do this? They're just like offended. Like, I'm, the, I'm the number three orthopedic hand surgeon in the world. But, you know, again, being a, a junior Marine, but also only having been in a year and a half, mm -hmm. not really even knowing, besides a Navy corpsman, about military medicine. Man, that's wild. So what did they say that you did and what was actually confirmed to be true, because obviously you said you don't remember um, what you actually did. Right. But, yeah. So, and, and how would you after yeah. getting hit by a grenade? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and at first, you know, it bothered me that I couldn't remember, but that, that uh, evolved more quickly than not into just being just amazed and just so uh, beyond grateful that I even woke up. And once I kind of grasped how just, crazy it was that I woke up. It's never bothered me since that I can't remember. But from eyewitness accounts and statements and testimony um, and a very, very thorough, years-long, 252-page investigation done by the Marine Corps and Department of Defense, uh, it was concluded that um, I attempted to cover slash shield the fellow Marine that was with me on that roof uh, from the grenade after it was thrown. But uh, before we go on, mm -hmm. I just want to make a point. You know, whether I'm speaking to a, a, you know, a group of middle school kids or a room full of Fortune 500 company CEOs, because you don't know what you would do or how you would react. And I didn't either. Mm -hmm. But that is the beauty of the human spirit. Mm. You never know how, when, or to what capacity you're going to step up. 
And there's something really important Kyle wants people to understand about joining the military. When you sign up, you don't sign up alone. Your family is part of it too. Your sacrifices become their sacrifices. And realistically, if you're wounded, guess who's going to take care of you? When they got the, the call, they had just got back from Sunday school and uh, it was actually left on our answering machine mm. to contact the Marine Corps uh, regarding your son. Oh, geez. Yeah. The answering machine. But, you know, they didn't go into specifics, right. but it was still obviously something's up. And so they they called and they got a very rough idea of what happened and they listed off my injuries, which some were accurate, some weren't. But either way, my, my parents still have it. It's the back of a, a long business uh, envelope. And uh, my dad was strong, and he knew that he had to immediately get the logistics together and make all the moves to get the family in the car and take off towards Walter Reed. But when they got there, the roles reversed. You know, my mom had been out of her mind, upset. Uh, I mean, I can't even imagine, and I'm not even a parent. And so when I got rolled through the doors of Walter Reed. Seven days of a journey where I died three times, where I was resuscitated three times, where I got 10 plus surgeries in hospitals throughout Afghanistan and Germany, where they stabilize you as much as possible before they, they put you on that eight, roughly eight hour flight back to the States. Um, but then, you know, when they got there and they saw me, um, my doctors asked my mom to bring pictures of me or anything that they could use to look at me and try to reconstruct my face back to what I somewhat looked like before. Okay. So when they got there and they saw me, the roles reversed. You know, my dad had an extremely difficult time and my mom went into, you know, mama bear mode. Mm -hmm. Like from that point on over the next three years, like it was you know, just beyond incredible. And of course, you know, my dad came around. It was just very difficult at first. And so often I think people get so focused on the veteran or the service member that they don't think about living by a telephone for whether you're in four years or 20 years. Every single day you think when you come back from running errands, going to the grocery store, you're going to come back and there's a government car in your driveway. Mm. thinking that every phone call, you don't even want to look at your phone or answer machine or whatever it is. You don't want to check your emails because you're going to learn of your loved one getting killed or seriously injured. And so, you know, really think about that, people. Like, it is a family effort. And so, of course, it was very difficult for my parents, but also my brothers, they were mid to late middle school, you know, my brothers who spent their Christmas that year in a hospital room, mm -hmm. my brothers who for the next two years did not really have a normal parent structure because one of them was always at Walter Reed living with me, taking me to appointments, taking me to surgeries and therapy. But I also knew that they were feeding off me. Mm-hmm. And so I thankfully was able to stay for the first few months, which were the most critical I knew, you know, for their well-being and mental state. I stayed very strong. 
you know, I wanted to do good and to be good for them because I already couldn't handle what they were having to go through. You know, I'll take it all day long, but to see my parents just truly suffering and wanting to help me, but knowing there is absolutely nothing they could do. You know, they can't make the surgeries go quicker. They can't help me breathe better. Coming up, Kyle Carpenter describes what he calls his breakdown moment when he came to terms with everything that happened to him over a bowl of cereal. This is Out of Uniform. We'll be back shortly. Did you ever think you'd become a parent to your parents? It happened to me a lot earlier than I expected, and I kept a diary. Okay, Ernest Hemingway, here's your mug that says Ernest Hemingway on it. Okay, good. Be sure to drink your Ensure, and I'll make you a milkshake later. Okay. I'm Kitty Isley. I host 24-7, a podcast about caregiving. It came from my experience, moving back home to take care of my dad as he aged, and trying to find advice about how to do it. I called friends and experts and complete strangers to ask about everything from how to give my dad a shave to how to talk about dying. And sometimes hearing about other people's crazy experiences made me laugh and feel a lot less alone. Y'all, I put sanitizer on my mother's hand and then she ate it. I want to make it easier for us to take care of the people we love when they can't care for themselves. I hope you'll give it a listen. You can find 24-7, a podcast about caregiving at tpr.org slash 247 and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Out of Uniform. Kyle Carpenter spent four months in military hospitals in Maryland and Virginia. He became less dependent, but still needed a lot more care and more surgeries. Over in Afghanistan, the fighting only got worse. The number of wounded was increasing, and the Walter Reed facility needed more beds. I got told with like a day or two notice that I was getting discharged. And we had made this agreement with the Marine Corps and Walter Reed that I could go home to my small town, South Carolina, to recover. So as long as my mom, a saint, drove me every two weeks to Walter Reed to do a surgery, and I did therapy every day at a local hospital clinic, I could go home to recover. So this was very end of February, and they were building a new, big, incredible wounded warrior barracks, like living home on the base of Walter Reed at this time. Okay. But it wasn't opening until September of 2011. So I had from March until September that I was granted permission to go home with the understanding that I would do therapy every day. And again, every two or three weeks, drive up to Walter Reed and do a surgery. And so we go to check out or like get um, discharged and you know, they're pretty much like, well, this is the type of therapy he needs. This is the wound care. Cause I mean, my wound care still took up to three hours every day that my parents had to do. Wow. But we got no list or recommendations of any care. Like, dude, it was like, you're getting discharged. You still have two years of recovery. Like mom, figure it out. 
Wow. That, dude, that's exactly what it was like. And I was so out of it at the time. You know, now, now I realize how crazy that is. It's nuts. Yeah. Hmm. So I get discharged. I go home. And I had an amazing therapist right there in Lexington, South Carolina. And my mom exhaustively for days, if not weeks, called every care provider within a hundred mile radius of Lexington and every single one like, sorry, ma'am, we just can't do wound care or handle, you know, injuries like that. You know, here's another recommendation. And she called until she was in tears every day, all day, because no one could help me with the level of wound care I needed. So she finally found the Augusta Burn Center, which is an incredible place. And so my mom was driving me an hour and a half to the burn center, two to three times a week, every two weeks driving me to DC and every day taking me to therapy. And I slept like, we always joke like, yep. Remember when I helped you on all those road trips? And it was like, I would fall asleep before we left the driveway. I would wake up when we pulled into DC after she had sat in DC traffic north of Virginia for two or three hours. And so, you know, I say all that to say. What an amazing woman. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Forever beyond grateful. Um, But I say all that to say, this is why I, I was at home when I had this breakdown moment. And uh, I had only been home like a few weeks, and uh, it was probably nine, ten o'clock one night. I decided to be a big bad Marine and uh, undertake the— um, This is how bad stories get started yeah, usually, right, by the way. right. <laughs> Never turns out the, the way it should or, or a good way, yeah. but— um, you know, I tried to, I tried to uh, prove to myself that I could do it and, uh, you know, uh, take on the task of making myself a bowl of cereal. And at this point, you know, again, it was very early on. I hadn't had my nerve graft repair surgeries. My wrist hung because I couldn't lift my hands because those nerves were severed. My arms had been shattered just a couple months before. Um... And so, you know, the milk felt like it weighed 100 pounds. I could barely open just the box, like the flap at the top. And when I got it made, which somehow I did with minimal spillage, but I'm sitting there in the dark of my kitchen. The lights were dimly lit. My mom was over in the living room. And there's two kind of reasons for my my breakdown in this moment. The first is sitting there in the kitchen, dimly lit, no noise, maybe a faint noise of a TV from the living room. But it was the first time in three or four months that it was just me, myself, and my thoughts. Mm. It had always been chaos around me, the doctors, the wound care, the surgeries, And just sitting there, it was just me. And it was the first time I kind of like had a, you know, wow, this has really happened type moment. The second aspect of it is I couldn't even really eat the cereal because the damage to my face, the nerves had been severed. So I I couldn't really tell how messy I was, but I just knew not like you don't realize how much structure and help your teeth in your mouth give you for so many things and to not have any teeth and to even not really be able to 
feel it, but know that milk was going everywhere. It was like, dude, a few months ago, I was not only in the best shape of my life, toting a, a machine gun and a thousand rounds through Afghanistan, but you know, now I can't even eat a bowl of cereal. Mm. And for months up until this point, not even being able to get out of bed, I was having to go in a bedpan, laying in my bed with my mom and dad beside me, with a team of five or six corpsmen around me, because to do anything, they had to hold all of these different tubes and cords. And so to just feel so helpless, I completely broke down. And my mom rushed in. You know, of course, she like immediately just thought I was in pain or something had happened. And, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? What, what happened? And I just looked up at her and I said, you know, look at me. Who's ever going to love me again? And I hated that I said that and I regret it in the moment because I, I saw that no matter, you know, what pain I was in before, no matter what happened to me, Nothing really truly tore her heart in two until that moment when I lost hope in myself. And so, uh, like the amazing mom she is, uh, she immediately put her arms around me and, uh, you know, she was emotional too. And she just said, you know, someday someone is going to love you for the rest of your life and this will all just be, you know, a distant memory. Mm -hmm. And so there was that moment. And then in the few seconds that followed, and I'm so forever grateful that I had this insight. I don't know how I did. And I had this super, like the lowest moment you could possibly have when you lose hope in yourself. Just internally in my head, I realized that I could get up and I could take a small step from that counter and continue on or I was going to sit at that kitchen counter for the rest of my life. Kyle went back to Walter Reed when the new Wounded Warrior facility opened. He was there for another two years. Altogether, he had some 40 surgeries. When he was finally cleared from the hospital, he took medical retirement and enrolled in college. But there was always talk of the Medal of Honor. Finally, in 2014, it was official. Marine Corps Public Relations told him the president was going to call. He remembers finishing class that day and coming home. My mom is like, why do you have your nasty shoes on? And the first question I ask is, well, you know, pretty much sorry about my shoes, but does anyone have a phone charger? I'm on 7%. And my mom is like, what? The president of the United States is about to call you and you couldn't even charge your cell phone? Got a charger got some juice. He called and um, we talked about school, where I was at, what I was doing. And he told me that based upon the secretary of the Navy and the secretary of defense's recommendation, you know, he was proud to be awarding me the Medal of Honor and that um, he was uh, proud of what me and my fellow Marines did. And um, he said he looked forward to seeing me later on to, uh, at my ceremony at the White House. Mm. So I hung up. Mom cried. My brothers couldn't believe it. I hope they weren't disappointed that we didn't get a dog in a recliner. <laughs> my dad told me he was proud of me. They gave, we, you know, group hugged it up. But I still couldn't tell anyone. 
you've taken this extremely seriously in the metal and knowing the weight of it. Yeah. What is, what is the weight of that? Um, it's, a uh, it's heavy beyond measure and it's a beautiful burden. The Medal of Honor is presented for gallantry on the battlefield. But today we also recognize Kyle Carpenter for his valor since in the hard fight for recovery. And uh, at the time, during my ceremony in the middle of college, uh, after the months of like the prep phase and all of these things, uh, in the moment when the president draped the medal around my neck, uh, you know, I hadn't had that time to process, to really think about what it truly means. The President of the United States, in the name of the Congress, takes pleasure in presenting the Medal of Honor to Lance Corporal William Kyle Carpenter, United States Marine Corps. For conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, while serving as an automatic rifleman with Company F, 2nd Battalion, 9th Marines, Regimental Combat Team 1, 1st Marine Division Forward, 1st Marine Expeditionary Force Forward, in Helmand Province, Afghanistan, in support of Operation Enduring Freedom on 21 November 2010. You know, to, to really think about what the medal represents, first of all, and I've known this from the, the moment I received it, it's not mine. Mm. Then you go to my parents who hung on every breath mm. in the beginning and who, while I was wildly hallucinating and losing my mind, took shifts for hours at a time, keeping their hand on my left ankle to try to keep me in reality. It represents the Marines that I was there on the ground with, Dakota Hughes, who the day before we were arguing over what's the best hot sauce. Mm -hmm. 24 hours later, he'll never be with us again. It represents all of those children in Afghanistan that asked me through interpreters, is everywhere in America like Disney World? Completely serious. Can you really go into your home and turn a knob? They didn't even know how to describe it. Turn something and get fresh, clean drinking water? The kids that were born into fear that lived through oppression and that died without ever really truly tasting freedom or safety or peace. I interviewed Kyle Carpenter before the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. He says, like many service members and vets, he was stunned watching the news. He says the pullout was inevitable but what unfolded was devastating. But in typical Kyle Carpenter fashion, he tries to find a silver lining. And that is, what he and others did over there, he feels made a difference. Kyle described his long road to recovery and how he reclaimed his life in a co-authored memoir, You Are Worth It, Building a Life Worth Fighting For. 
He graduated from the University of South Carolina in 2017 in international studies. He's run three Marine Corps marathons. He's an amazing motivational speaker and an advocate for wounded warriors. And Kyle Carpenter, who wondered that day in his kitchen if anyone could ever love him again, married this past November. This is Out of Uniform. I'm Tim Kolzak, an Iraq Army combat veteran. I travel the country talking to vets about their lives before, during, and after service. Out of Uniform's executive producer and editor is Carson Frame, Texas Public Radio's military and veteran affairs reporter. Additional production and editing help from Cindy Carpian and Adam Kulikov. Jacob Rosati sound designed the episodes and wrote the theme music. This podcast is a co-production of the Veterans Project and Texas Public Radio. TPR's news director is Dan Katz. The president and CEO is Joyce Slocum. You can see photographs and listen to extended interviews at thevetsproject.com. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one 800 273 8255 or the crisis text line by texting home to 741741.